1 Corinthians 15. We read from the beginning of the chapter. Let's read and hear together the Word of God. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Amen. Romans chapter 6 from verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, 
we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. It will be a great help to you to have uh, 1 Corinthians 15 open before you. We'll be looking there and in Romans 6, but we'll begin in 1 Corinthians this morning, page 961 in the Church Bibles. During the Second World War, a politician by the name of Konrad Adenauer was imprisoned by Adolf Hitler for his opposition to the Nazi regime. Uh, but in 1949, Adenauer was to become the first chancellor of the West German Federal Republic. For the next 14 years, he sought to pick up the broken pieces of his country and to lead his people as they tried to rebuild something from the rubble of a nation. On one occasion, uh, Adenauer met Billy Graham, the evangelist, and apparently he asked him this. He said, Mr. Graham, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? To which Billy Graham, unsurprisingly, uh, said, yes, I certainly do. And then Conrad Adenauer said this. Mr. Graham, he said, outside of the resurrection of Jesus, I do not know of any other hope for this world. I do not know of any other hope for this world. As far as he was concerned, the resurrection was not only the most important event in history, as he described it, but it was also an event with, with deep practical implications and repercussions. The hope of the world was wrapped up with it. So, this morning we come to this statement in the Apostles' Creed, on the third day, He, Jesus Christ, rose again from the dead. And we're basically going to try and answer two questions this morning. Number one, what does that mean? And number two, why does it matter? We start with the fact of the resurrection. What do we mean by this claim? What exactly are we saying happened in that garden tomb outside Jerusalem all those years ago? And, and in a sense, this may be basic, uh, but it, it needs to be addressed. We always need to come back to this because, of course, it is a fairly regular occurrence to hear some minister or theologian or bishop who will deny that the resurrection of Jesus ever really took place. Uh, they, they get wheeled out by the media every Easter, don't they? And, and in gentle, sincere tones, they will patiently explain, as if to slow-minded children, that the resurrection of Jesus wasn't a crude physical thing. 
It's terribly naive to think of it in that way. This is, this is the Bible's way of expressing a spiritual truth. What really matters is that the idea of Jesus has lived on in the hearts and minds of His followers. Usually what that actually comes down to is the idea is be nice to each other. That's, that's basically what it amounts to. The evident wisdom and goodness of His moral teaching has inspired men and women for the last 2,000 years, and in that sense, Jesus lives today. He's alive in the hearts of His followers. What drivel that is. Drivel. We need to be crystal clear that that is not what the Bible teaches, and it is not what the Christian church has affirmed for 2,000 years, and it is not what the creed means when it speaks about Jesus rising again from the dead. The whole witness of the Bible is that the resurrection of Jesus was and of necessity had to be a straightforward historical fact. In the opening verses of 1 Corinthians 15, nothing could be clearer there than the fact that Paul wants to emphasize the historicity of this event. Just look at what he says. He begins with what we covered last week, verse 3, Christ died. He physically died. Verse 4, He was buried. His lifeless body was placed in a tomb. These are straightforward statements of fact, of historical record. It's funny how these guys that get trotted out for the media never say, well, when it says that He died, it doesn't really mean that He physically died. They never say that, do they? Everyone accepts that He physically died. So he died, and he was, his body was, was placed in a tomb. Straightforward statements of fact. Still in verse 4, he was raised on the third day. This same physical body rises from the dead, somehow changed and transformed and made fit for eternity, but recognizably the same physical body of Jesus Christ, the same person. And then to clinch it all, he appears. And you have this amazing list from, from verse 5 of his appearances to Cephas or Peter, and to the disciples, and to James, and to the apostles again, and to Paul, and in the midst of it all, this intriguing reference. We don't know anything more about this, but this intriguing reference to the risen Jesus appearing to 500 believers on one occasion, some of whom have now died, but most of whom are alive, and, and read between the lines, brackets, go and ask them. This is, this is open and straightforward. There are, there are witnesses have seen him alive. Paul is quite clearly asserting the resurrection of Christ as a historical fact, which is what the Bible does throughout. And, and, and to, to, to say that, to affirm that, is not a theological nicety. This is not just two different ways of looking at the same thing. This is crucial. It is of first importance, says Paul. The greatest issue we face as, a human, as human beings is not that we need to be inspired by the ideas and ideals of Jesus. Here's, here's the greatest problem you face. You're going to die. I don't know if you've realized that before, but it's true. You. Death is not just something that happens to, to other people. You are going to die. I am going to die. And, and that just seem, doesn't that just seem to contradict every instinct that there is within you, every longing of our souls is for immortality, is for life. Everything in us rebels against that. We don't want to think about it, do we? 
You have to, you have to pay a minister to, to stand and tell you that because nobody else is going to tell you that. When was the last time somebody looked you in the face and said, you're going to die? We don't want to face it because everything in us rebels against it. And, and that itself, is, isn't, isn't that itself not just a deeply fascinating and suggestive thing? If all we are is, is lucky DNA that survives in a host body for a while, and, and then the body dies, then is it not strange that this host organism recoils at the idea of death? Longs for life. The Bible tells us why. God has placed eternity in your heart. Whoever you are, all of us, God has placed eternity in our hearts. That's why death feels so wrong. I, I don't know how you feel when you're confronted by death. I, I find that a whole range of emotions is there, is mixed up in it. And, and speaking for myself, it seems to me, I was trying to think about this and what it amounts to. And I, I, think, I, I think there are at least four things kind of happening. Number one, most obviously, you feel grief when you're confronted by death, by the death of someone else. You, you, you feel grief. You feel the natural sorrow of loss. And that, that can be just, just quite overwhelming. Number two, you feel pity for the sorrow of others affected by this. You look on at others and you, and you sense the pain and you feel, you feel pity. But there's more than this. Number three, when I'm confronted by death, I, I also feel something which I can only describe, the closest word to it, I can only describe it as shame. Shame. A sense that death is somehow obscene. This is, this is, there's something that's happened here that is profoundly wrong and that should not be. I actually came across a comment from a, an author, Thomas Brown. He was a, a 17th century um, author, and, and he used to say, I am not so much afraid of death as I am ashamed of it. That's the way he put it. And then there's a fourth element I find confronted by death that I also feel to a certain degree, anger. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is not what we were made for. This is not how it should be. We were made for glory. And it is sin and it is Satan that have brought us to this. This obscenity. The Bible says it, it, it is wrong. These instincts are, are right instincts. Hatred for death is right. Because, because we were made for eternity, and, and, and the whole of you was made for eternity. All that you are, mind and soul and body, you were created to exist forever, and not as an indistinguishable element in the universe, not as an ethereal mistiness floating about in the sky, but you, the person you are with everything that you are, the personality you have, but made perfect, the body you have, but made perfect. We'll be thinking about that more when we come to the, the statement in the creed later, I believe in the resurrection of the body. But for now, just, let me just quote something that Tim Keller said about this. He points out that because of the physical resurrection of Jesus, uh, Jesus, unlike the founder of any other faith, holds out hope for ordinary human life. 
Our future is not an ethereal, impersonal form of consciousness. We will not float through the air. We will eat, embrace, sing, laugh, and dance in the kingdom of God in degrees of power, glory, and joy that we cannot at present imagine. That's what lies before us. Not something weird to to be mystified by or to fear, but glorious life where every morning you will wake up and, and, and say, this is a fresh day. Bring it on. It's hard for us to imagine that going on forever. But that's what we're promised. And that can only come if on the third day, Jesus physically in his body rose from the dead. The shame and obscenity and scandal of death can only be defeated and put right by a resurrection that, that really happened. My death, my coming death, is a concrete fact, and it cannot be overcome by an idea. It can only be overcome by the concrete fact of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead in a particular place, at a particular time, a particular body rose. And only if that happened will I rise? Um, For some people, let me just cover this very quickly. Um, For some people, of course, the whole thing is a ridiculous suggestion. Maybe you you have a difficulty with this. Maybe you're just not quite sure where where to stand on it because, of course, um, people don't rise from the dead, do they? We all all know that. Uh, It's against nature. And and we don't have time to go into this in any detail, but but I, I just feel the need to say simply this, that once you concede the possibility that God exists you concede the possibility of resurrection. Um, Once you have a a, a God, you have introduced a factor which is entirely above nature, which by definition lies outside the normal workings of of life and the world, and, and you then have absolutely no logical reason and absolutely no scientific reason why God cannot then intervene in His world. Uh, in supernatural ways. So, if God exists at all in any meaningful personal sense, then miracles present no rational problem whatsoever, no reason why He could not have raised Jesus from the dead. So, this is what we affirm. I just want to be clear about that from the beginning. This is what we affirm. On the third day, in the plain meaning of these words, He rose from the dead. Why does it matter? What does it mean for us? Secondly, I have a book at home called Christ is Risen, so what? That, that's the question. And it's actually amazing. If, if you were to go out on the street and do a survey, things may be changing now, um, but if you were to go out on the street and do a survey and said, do, did, did Jesus rise from the dead? I guarantee you, you would be astonished by the number of people who would say yes. You would be astonished. The last actual one I've heard of was about 10 years ago. Things may have changed um, since then, but, but huge proportions of people um, 60%, I can't remember when the numbers, but, you know, huge proportion. Did Jesus rise? Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely amazing. But for the vast majority of these people, of course, it makes absolutely no difference to their lives. Life just continues. Christ has risen, so what? They'll say that, that He did, but it doesn't seem to make any difference. So, what difference does it make? What are the implications of the resurrection. Well, they're endless, but um, I want to try and summarize three things this morning, three core implications. Here's the first thing. The resurrection of Jesus vindicates Jesus' claims about Himself. We need to be realistic about the kind of things Jesus said. Uh, The common view that Jesus was a good moral teacher is only tenable if you don't actually pay any attention to what He said. 
This is a man who made stunning claims about his own identity, in particular, the claim that he was, was in fact, God in human flesh. He, he clearly made that claim. He made outrageous assertions about how men and women need to be made acceptable to a perfectly holy God, and in particular, that believing in Him was the only way for that to happen. He made offensive statements about the fate of those who refuse to believe in Him, in particular, that they will be rejected by God and will face judgment. All of these things are the plain teaching of Jesus. He made these claims, and the question is, why should we believe anyone who makes these claims? These are not things that we naturally want to believe, and of course, our culture finds them more and more offensive today. Now, I have a simple mind, so I'm, I'm going to offer a simple answer to this question. Why should we believe Him? Here's the simple answer to that question. When someone rises from the dead, you listen to what they say. It is as simple as that. When someone rises from the dead, you hang on their every word. You recognize this changes everything. Clearly makes no sense, as, as so many people are clearly willing to do, to say, oh yes, Jesus rose from the dead, and then to go on with your life regardless and, and pay no attention to it. It makes no sense to say Jesus rose from the dead, but I don't believe what He said about Himself. That's, that's just silly. As Paul puts it in Romans 1.4, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power. This is the verification of all the claims that He had ever made. That's why Paul is so insistent. Everything hangs on the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14 if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's all empty. That, that's the, the, the kind of tone of it. It's just empty. It's vacuous, the whole thing. Everything you've believed is fatally undermined, and, and we gathered here are pitiful souls, he says. We are of all people most to be pitied if Christ didn't rise. But here's the crucial thing. If He is risen, then everything you believe is absolutely supported by the evidence. So, that's the, that's the first thing. The, the resurrection of Jesus vindicates His claims about Himself. Secondly, the resurrection of Jesus validates His victory over sin and death. We, we were thinking last week about the cross, about the death of Jesus in our place for our sin. He tasted death for us as the writer to the Hebrews put it, he died to take the full penalty of sin, to exhaust its punishment, to receive the full extent of the curse of sin, which is death. But how then do we know that the death of Jesus was effective? I mean, you know, you, you look at that scene. An amazing quote this week from, from John Owen, one of his books, a, a remarkable quote, I should have written it down, but he says, he speaks about Jesus being lifted up from the earth, which trembles beneath him as if it cannot bear his weight, or the weight of all the sin placed upon him. And, and the heavens are darkened as if the heavens too are closed to him. God turns his face away. And so he hangs there between heaven and earth, rejected by both, belonging nowhere, utterly alone, does this for us. But, but when you look at that sight, if you imagine that scene in your mind, how can you see that as victory? 
How can you see that as accomplishing something? It's just death and horror. How do we know that this does something for us? Because he rose from the dead. His resurrection is the conclusive evidence. It's the definitive confirmation that all, that all of this has been achieved for us. His sin, our, our sin really was placed upon him. He really did face the judgment of God in our place so that we need not. And God really has, this is the great thing, that the resurrection is God's ringing declaration, I have accepted this. The resurrection is God, and He takes the, 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 the list of your sins, and it is God saying, paid, paid in full, all done. The resurrection confirms it. Look at what Paul says in verse 17. If, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Why? And you are still in your sins. See what he's saying? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we have no reason to believe that His death accomplished anything and that we're forgiven. If his body is, is lying turned to dust in a grave somewhere near Jerusalem, then how can we say that he defeated sin, he defeated death on our behalf? If the tomb's not empty, there's no reason to believe that his death was purposeful or meaningful in any way. It's just been a tragic mistake. It's a failure. But if he rose, then he has proved, God has shown that sin is dealt with. All who trust in Him are reconciled to God. The connection between the resurrection and our salvation is so close. Paul says in Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Justification, being put right with God, declared righteous. He was, it's the resurrection that proves it. Paul says in Romans 4. So, Jesus' resurrection vindicates his claims about himself. It validates his victory over sin and death. And in turn, all of that leads to a third consequence. The resurrection of Jesus opens up new life for us. The good news of the Bible, the gospel, is that what he won by his life and death and resurrection, he won not just for himself, but for all who believe in him. As a result of these events, Jesus died, he, he, ra he, he was raised, and now He lives, and He lives with a new and victorious and never-ending and unconquerable life, but that life is not a life that He keeps to Himself. It is such an abundant life that it flows out of Him to all who trust in Him. He gives it to all of His people. He shares it. And that means two things. I want to look at this in two, in two stages, if you like. It means, firstly, that when we look to the future, we are assured of life in the future after our bodies die. Jesus has proved that He has defeated death, and He's done it for us. And so, uh, says Paul, verse 20 here, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death... By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. I want to talk to you um, for a minute about the, the theological significance of apple and bramble crumble. 
one of my favorite things in the world. You'll be inundated with apple and bramble crumble now. I'm on a diet, so please don't. But when I was growing up, when I was a child, it was one of my favorite things to have. We lived in a house outside the town, and uh, we were just above an old railway line, all overgrown, beaching. Thank you, Mr. Beaching. You gave us brambles. Um, and so the, the, the time would, that, that time of year would come, and, and you'd, you know, you'd be going about the place, and you'd keep an eye on these bushes. And, and, and sooner or later, you'd see these, these berries, these little berries go from green to kind of purpley, ready, purpley, and then, and, then, and then you'd see one one day that was black. And you'd know the rest are coming. And, and you'd spend the next month with, with purple fingers and mouth. The first fruits tells you that there's a harvest coming. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a magnificent thing. It's a stunning thing. It's a breathtaking thing. Paul says, it's just the first fruits. This is just the, this is, it's like the first bramble on the bush. There, there, is, there is this mighty harvest coming. All who believe in him will rise because he rose. I am the resurrection and the life, he said. John 11, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And that means that Christians can face death with, with supreme confidence. Um, Conrad Adenauer that I mentioned at the beginning wasn't the only man to uh, be imprisoned for resisting the Nazi regime. The same fate befell Dietrich Bonhoeffer, pastor, Lutheran pastor, um, and eventually on the 8th of April 1945 at Flossenburg concentration camp, um, Bonhoeffer was conducting worship for some of his fellow prisoners one day, and he conducted the service, and he closed, and as he closed in prayer, um, the, the door at the back of the room, the door opened, and a guard um, stood there and called Bonhoeffer, uh, prisoner Bonhoeffer, whatever his number was probably, come with me. And everyone knew what it meant. Flossenburg would be liberated two weeks later, but in, in April... Um, Bonhoeffer went, and as he went, he went to his execution, he was hanged the next day, but as he left the room, there was a prisoner sitting, and he, he leaned down to this prisoner as he walked past, and he said, this is the end, but for me, it is the beginning. For me, it is the beginning. That's the promise of the risen Jesus. That's the confidence that we can have no, it's not just pious words. It's not uh, trying to escape reality. It is genuinely true. When you lie on your deathbed, when you take your last breath, it will be the beginning. So there's the first thing, but there's more still. Because the Bible is always clear that the new life that Jesus holds out is not something that's going to begin when we die not just something for the future, something that is held out to us now. In the church where we were in Dundee, the lovely moment, somebody told me one day about their son had come to them and said, um, when are we going on holiday? And they said, tomorrow. And he thought about it for a second, and then he's obviously desperate to get away. 
thought about it for a second, and then you said, is tomorrow today? Well, in a sense, for the believer, tomorrow is today. Christ's life and death and resurrection have won for us a new life that isn't just tomorrow. That new life is ours now. Yes, we'll we'll know it fully and finally tomorrow, in the future, after our deaths, but there's also a sense in which tomorrow is today. This this new life is ours. So last week that the New Testament says that all who believe in Jesus have been crucified with Him, have died with Him, so that our sins have have been dealt with. The curse of our death has been dealt with. But the New Testament goes further. So and and this is why we read from Romans. Turn with me to, to Romans 6, page 942 in the church Bibles. Because this is important for us today. Romans 6, at certain points in this chapter, Paul sounds as if he's saying just what we've been saying so far, that, that we, we have an eternal life for the future. So, verse 5, if we've, been, if we've been united with Him in death, we will certainly be united with Him in resurrection. Verse 8, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. And you could take all of that so far to mean, well, you know, that's about after we die. And yet, what's the whole thrust of this passage? It's all about the life we're living now. Look at verse 4. We were buried with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's that's about today. Verse 6, our old self was crucified with Him so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 11, because Jesus died to sin, in the same way you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal body. Don't present your members as sin to un, uh, uh, as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought. Perfect tense, completed action. Those who have been brought from death to life. Paul saying that because Jesus was raised from the dead, because we are united to Him by faith, we have a new life to live right now. We have the risen life of Christ right now. Eternal life is not something that you'll, you'll get. It's not a gift that's waiting for you in the grave. It's something that has already been given to you, and you need to know that so that you can live it. That's why we sing sometimes, as we did last week, not only that death is crushed to death, but that life is mine to live. Death and resurrection of Jesus accomplishes that. Life in the fullest, greatest, most ultimate sense is now mine. It lies before me. It's open to me in a whole new way. And so, the resurrection of Jesus is not just about, oh, I'll live forever. It opens up hope for the transformation of our lives now. It's a key thing for how we live today. Holds out hope for meaning and purpose in life now. It holds out hope for victory over temptation and sin now. Not because, well, you know, you're going to get a second chance, try harder this time, but because Jesus is risen and has put His life in you, and you are no more a slave to sin than He is. His life is in you. Does Paul say, the life I live in the body, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You no longer need to rely on your own resources to face the things that you face that are difficult in this life. 
You no longer need to rely on your own strength to overcome temptation, become more like Christ. It's the resurrection of Jesus and His gift of His life that makes transformation possible, that makes Christ-likeness possible. It's the result of His risen life at work in us and through us here and now. Paul speaks in Ephesians 1. He prays for the church that you may know, by which he means experience, the knowledge of experience. He prays that you may experience what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe. And do you remember how he then goes on to describe and define that power? He says it is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. This is at work in our lives. It is power toward us who believe. The resurrection really is the pivotal moment in history. Adenauer was right. Either this changes everything or nothing will ever change. Those are the two options. We live in a messed up world. We live in a world filled with pain, filled with the disruption of relationships, filled with war, filled with strife, just constant, unending mountains of interpersonal strife and warfare. People live their entire lives at war with others. I'm not talking about Syria. I'm talking about the staff room and all the, 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 the tsunamis of, of personal bitterness and, and petty squabbles that, that fill our lives continually. And, 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 and you, you just see it in, on a small scale. You see it on grand scales. But, but apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is going to go on forever and never stop. Apart from this, there is no hope for the world. Let me quote you one other um, histor- a historian, really, a theological historian. He's an American theologian of Slovak descent, um, so he rejoiced in the wonderful name of Yaroslav Pelikan. His name is a great name, Yaroslav Pelikan. Um, he died in 2006. He was 83. And after a lifetime of theological study, he was now facing his death. It said that one of the last things that he said was this. If Christ is risen, then nothing else matters. If Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. Everything hinges on this. If it didn't happen, if the death of Jesus was just death, just defeat, then that is the end of hope. If it's not true, nothing in this life matters at all for anything. If it is true, then nothing else matters in comparison to this. Nothing else matters but to know this and to have this life The only right response is one of wholehearted faith. So we respond by saying, I believe that this man is who he said he was. I believe that his death was for me and really did deal with my sin in a way that that pleased God and put me right with God. I, I believe in the one who has power over death and I trust him to see me through life and to see me through death. And I believe in him and receive the life that He has given to me so that today I will live for Him, not in my own strength, but out of the power of the living God flowing into me and through me because Jesus rose from the dead. That's what it means. 
That's what it means when we affirm, as we must do, I believe in Jesus Christ, who on the third day rose again from the dead. Let's pray. God, our Father, we give thanks to you for the sheer reality of this. We, we give thanks for the sheer physicality of this. The Son of God incarnate who, who stopped breathing and his heart stopped and everything shut down. And then on the third day, by the power of Almighty God, this process of death, physical death, never before reversed in this way, undone the, the, the scandal attended to the obscenity reversed and removed and, and life, lungs that had stopped, breathed, the heart that had stopped, beat, eyes that had closed, opened. And Father, how we thank you, how we thank you and praise you, both for those in Christ who have gone before us and for ourselves as we face our own death, the Lord doesn't come first. How we thank you for that promise of hearts that will start again, lungs that will breathe again, eyes that will open again, mouths that will speak again. This is unspeakably precious to us. And so we praise you and we give you the glory. And we pray, too, that we would know more and more in our lives something of what it is to live by the risen power and life of Christ. We would know ourselves, know what it means to live in, in union and in communion with Him, in fellowship with Christ, becoming more like Him. Father, make these things real in us, we pray, and form Him in us. And may we live the life that you have laid before us now as well as throughout eternity. Receive our prayers, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.